Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, The Legal Issues Behind the Colorado Ballot Disqualification Case. Please welcome John Malcolm, Vice President of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government. Well, thank you all for being here and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. On December the 19th, a closely divided Colorado Supreme Court issued an opinion holding the former president, Donald Trump, had engaged in an insurrection on January the 6th of 20, uh, 2021, uh, and that he was disqualified from appearing on the ballot in that state and from serving as president, pursuant to section three of the 14th Amendment. That amendment states in pertinent part as follows. Could you please put that on the screen? No person shall be a senator or a representative in Congress or elector, president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state, who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or any member of the state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. but. Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. And Section 5 provides the Congress shall have the power to enforce, by appropriate legislation, the provisions of this article. Almost immediately after the Colorado Supreme Court issued its opinion, the Secretary of State in Maine, relying on that opinion, also struck Trump from the ballot. The Supreme Court has decided to take up this case and will hear oral arguments tomorrow. Those favoring the Colorado decision argue that Section 3 is self-executing, meaning it doesn't take an act of Congress to implement it, and that Donald Trump was an officer of the United States who took an oath to support the Constitution and engage in an insurrection against the United States by egging on his supporters who entered the Capitol on January 6th while Congress was counting the Electoral College vote and certifying the election. There are a lot of legal issues involved in this case, and we are joined by four distinguished panelists to discuss them. I would invite them to come up on the stage. So you will hear from them in this order. The first will be Todd Rakita. Todd is the 44th Attorney General for the state of Indiana, having served in that position since 2021. Prior to serving as AG, Todd served for eight years as Secretary of State and for four terms in the House of Representatives. Along with West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, Todd filed an amicus brief on behalf of 25 states, the Arizona legislature, and the legislative leadership of, of North Carolina. You'll then hear from Hans von Spakowski, who is a senior legal fellow in the Mies Center and the manager of our election law reform initiative. He has written several articles on this case. Prior to joining Heritage, Hans worked on voting matters at the Justice Department as a counsel to the Assistant Attorney General 
for civil rights, and he also served two terms as a member of the Federal Election Commission, which is the authority charged with enforcing campaign finance laws for congressional and presidential elections, and as a member of the Board of Advisors for the U.S. Election Assistance Committee Commission. You will then hear from Patrick Strawbridge. Patrick is a partner at the firm of Consovoy McCarthy, where he represents a wide array of clients on all phases of litigation. He clerked for three different judges, including Judge Morris Arnold of the Eighth Circuit and Justice Clarence Thomas of the US Supreme Court. Patrick has filed an amicus brief in the case on behalf of the Republican National Committee and the National Republican Congressional Committee. And last but certainly not least, you will hear from Josh Blackman. Josh is a professor of law and the Centennial Chair of Constitutional Law at South Texas College, the South Texas College of Law in Houston, where he specializes in constitutional law, the US Supreme Court, and the intersection of law and technology. A former law clerk to Sixth Circuit Judge Danny Boggs, he is a regular contributor to the Volokh Conspiracy, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and the founder and president of the Harlan Institute. He is also going to serve as a senior editor of the next edition of the Heritage Guide to the Constitution. Of significance for today's discussion, Josh, along with Seth Tillman, who is also here with us today, has written a couple of extensive law review articles on the issues involved in this case. Todd, the podium is yours. Uh, thank you, Malcolm, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Appreciate uh, being back at the Heritage Foundation. And Hans, it's great to work with you again and, and meet your new friends. So. Um, as Indiana's Attorney General, I'm regularly in court telling the federal government to stay out of the state's lives. Uh, but principles of federalism and rule of law also mean that every player in the system must respect when the Constitution does entrust an issue to Congress or, more importantly, the American voters. So respecting this division of responsibility is especially important in the context of a national presidential election. Uh, electoral integrity is essential to a free republic. Uh, voters will lose all confidence if judges decide that voters cannot even consider one of our nation's uh, uh, two leading presidential candidates. So that's one of the major problems with the Colorado decision that we're going to discuss today. Uh, and I think the common sense notion that judges shouldn't be picking presidents is why uh, my good friend West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey and I uh, assembled an impressive a uh, coalition of 27 common sense states uh, in asking the Supreme Court to let, uh, let American voters decide just that and have their say. In this opening segment, I'm gonna focus on three of the many important issues in this case, whether section three is self-executing, uh, the meaning of the word insurrection, and how the Colorado court's decision is impacting the rest of the states. First, uh, section three is not self-executing textually, uh, the 14th Amendment commits enforcement to Congress. Section 5 stresses that Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. And Section 3 specifies that Congress, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, may remove the disability imposed by the Insurrection Clause. Enforcement is for Congress and not the courts. Uh, Justice Salmon Chase took the very view, took that very view, a few months after the 14th Amendment was adopted. In the 1867 case of Griffin, several criminal defendants in Virginia challenged their sentences on the theory that the sentencing judge had once been a Confederate official and couldn't hold office. 
under Section 3. But Justice Chase rejected that theory. He explained that Section 5 gave absolute control of the whole operation of the amendment to Congress. Uh, and it did so with reason. He said only Congress is able to provide for the proceedings necessary to ascertain which person Section 3 covers and ensure enforcement of the decision. Of the decision. Now there's evidence that Congress agreed with Justice Chase, Chase's view. Key drafters of Section 3, such as Thaddeus uh, Stevens, explained that Section 3 will not execute itself, quote unquote. And so eventually Congress passed the Enforcement Act of 1870. Uh, to provide for Section 3's enforcement, but that provision was later repealed, leaving no enforcement mechanism in place today, a showing of con congressional intent itself. Um, now, encroaching on Congress's role is bad enough, uh, but it's particularly problematic here where the question is, what does insurrection mean? A question answered more often by diplomats, uh, diplomats politicians, or soldiers than judges. Uh, the opinions and briefs in this case have offered many possible definitions. The Colorado court itself defined insurrection as concerted and public use of force or threat of force by a group of people to hinder or prevent the U.S. government from taking the actions necessary to accomplish the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, that definition raises far more questions than answers, and therein lies the problem. For example, if two people link arms uh, at a, to block a poll worker, from entering the ballot counting site, is that an insurrection? Or what about the protesters at President Trump's inauguration that I was able to go to, where I saw rocks being thrown uh, and bottles being thrown at police officers, where I saw vehicles being set fire to, uh, trash cans being set fire to, where I saw windows being smashed that day in 2017? Did that hinder the peaceful transfer of power and why weren't all those people arrested for insurrection. Now, there is good evidence that insurrection is far more serious than the Colorado court thought. Throughout our nation's history, insurrection is usually coupled with words like invasion or rebellion. You see that in Article I of the Constitution. These definitions track the insurrections that would have been a top of mind for the drafters of the 14th Amendment, like the Civil War, uh, like Shays' Rebellion, like the Whiskey Rebellion, like Fry's Rebellion, like Doors' Rebellion. Each of these events lasted months or years. They had extended violence. They had targeted local officials and included either a combat or election or election of a rival government. Still, even with this guidance, I don't think courts should be the ones deciding what insurrection is, and clearly our founders didn't think that either. It was for Congress. Now, my final point is about the impact of the Colorado court's decision. This brings us to um, what does Indiana for example, care? What does West Virginia care about what the Colorado Supreme Court does? Well, here's why. States have a strong interest in the orderly, fair elections that give voters confidence in the results. And that's the key point. Bear in mind that the president is one of only two elected official, officials that all American voters in every state um, and other territories get to vote for. It's the only two. If the Colorado court had its way, uh, there could be a wide variation of presidential candidates to pick from, from state to state, and that could lead to a dilution of votes for voters of particular states. Um, think of all the chaos also that would ensure Colorado, uh, that would ensue if the Colorado decision stands. If every state gets to decide for itself which candidate should be constitutionally eligible to run for uh, president, uh, 
Uh, I'm not talking about local offices. This is president and vice president uh, because the states definitely have a say in the election of their local officials and certainly under the Constitution in terms of the time, manner, and place of elections. Um, but if one party's candidate is removed, what's to stop the other party from finding friendly judges in a different state to remove the opposition there? A uh, lawfare would certainly uh, be uh, uh, um, heightened and probably take us off the rails. And public confidence in our, election is the, in our elections is the last glue that holds our republic together, in my opinion. And suppose a president manages to get elected despite the chaos. He'll then have to constantly watch his or her back and look over his shoulder. Remember that section three not only disqualifies anyone who engages in insurrection, but also who gives aid and comfort to the enemy. Suppose a president intensely impose, opposes an act of Congress and then others who support that same position use violence. Is he not a risk being branded an insurrectionist? This is the problem. Voters will lose confidence in fair elections if judges start deciding who can and can't be president. That will erode election integrity. And so we're asking simply for the rule of law to prevail here. Thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. Well, I do want to welcome everyone to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, this is probably the hottest ticket in town will be being able to get into the Supreme Court on Thursday. So we'll have to see uh, who's going to be able to get in. Um, there are so many issues in this case over this one paragraph um, that we decided we would divide up the issues so you could hear about all of them. So I've got two of, two of the issues. Uh, to talk to you about, but the most important thing I think for anyone in this situation to do is to divorce themselves from whether they like or don't like Donald Trump, whether they support or don't support Donald Trump. That is not the issue in this case. The issue is whether state authorities, not just courts, but a lone state official has the ability to disqualify a uh, otherwise qualified candidate for president. And that is the issue here. Now, the one, one of the things that's been, it's been virtually ignored by the courts, and frankly by many of the lawyers in this case, is the final sentence in section three, where it says, but Congress may by a vote of two thirds of each house remove such disability. That is a unique provision. You will not find it in any other part of the Constitution in any other amendment, because what does it do? It specifically gave Congress the power to void Section 3 and basically remove it from the amendment. There's nothing like that anywhere else in the Constitution. It makes sense that they put this in because, you know, this section was uh, put into the 14th Amendment by Republicans who controlled Congress at the time because they were angry that all these former Confederate military officers and Confederate government officials were getting reelected to Congress. Now, what hasn't been mentioned by the courts in almost all the cases is that Congress took advantage of that final sentence and actually passed two amnesty acts 
1872 and another in 1898. Now, unlike today's bills in Congress, which are often several hundred pages and very complicated, the first Amnesty Act of 1872 was basically one paragraph. It was passed by the requisite two-thirds of Congress, and it said, quote, all political disabilities imposed by the third section of the 14th Article of Amendments of the Constitution of the United States are hereby removed from all persons whomsoever except for, and it made exceptions for certain senior military and other officers of the Confederacy and for any members of Congress who had served in the two sessions just before and during the Civil War who had left Congress and gone over to the Confederate side. Now, notice what is not in that, that Amnesty Act. There is no language of any kind preserving the Section 3 disqualifications for any future cases. It simply says that all the disqualifications of Section 3 are removed from all persons whatsoever except for those few stated exceptions. Now, in 1898, Congress passed a second Amnesty Act that was even shorter, it was just one sentence. And it was part of the reconciliation that was going on with elderly you know, veterans of the, of the North and South who had fought the bloodiest war in American history. It was part of the same kind of feelings that put up the statue to reconciliation at Arlington National Cemetery, which was just destroyed by the administration. Uh, it also had no language whatsoever preserving any of the disqualifications of Section 3 for any future occasions. Uh, it simply got rid of the remaining exceptions for any of the uh, Confederate officers and other officials who were still covered. Now, it was an act of reconciliation, but in a very interesting quirk of history. <laughs> the main reason this got passed was because, as you all know, 1898, we entered the Spanish-American War. And at the time, there were no senior U.S. Army officers with any wartime experience handling large units of cavalry. However, there was a general, a major general, who had fought in battle after battle after battle com commanding large forces of cavalry, Confederate General Joe Wheeler. And so Confederate General Joe Wheeler, because of this Amnesty Act, was given command of the cavalry forces of the Union Army in Cuba. Now, there was a uh, district court opinion in 2022 in an effort to remove a Republican member of Congress from North Carolina from the ballot using this same identical Section 3. The court recognized the plain text of the Amnesty Acts and said they were no longer in effect. That decision was overturned by a three-judge uh, panel of the Fourth Circuit, but frankly, it was a badly reasoned decision that really didn't provide a basis for their conclusion that the Amnesty Acts only got rid of the disqualifications for uh, individuals up to the time the acts had been passed, 
they didn't really provide any reasoning for why that somehow overrode the actual plain text of it. Now, one other historical incident I want to mention, because I think it's actually relevant to the fight going on today, and again, I, I haven't seen this mentioned anywhere. Um, in 1919, the U.S. House of Representatives refused to seat a man named Victor Berger, who had been elected to represent Wisconsin, and they used Section 3 against him. Why? Because in an abusive prosecution by the U.S. Department of Justice, the Justice Department convicted Berger of espionage. Why? Well, he hadn't actually engaged in any espionage. What he had done was he was a very public opponent of the U.S. entry into World War I. He even had published pamphlets encouraging American men not to join the U.S. Army. Uh, he, that led to universal condemnation of him, including in the mainstream press at the time, and he was convicted of espionage for doing that. Now, to the credit of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, they actually overturned that conviction. And they did it because of the extreme bias of the trial judge, who was quoted as saying that the hearts of all German Americans in this country are, quote, unquote, reeking with disloyalty. So that tells you a little bit about that case. Uh, haven't I, have we heard similar sentiments about individuals supporting uh, Donald Trump? Uh, what's interesting about this case is that a congressional committee issued a report justifying the refusal to seat uh, Victor Berger because they claimed that Congress uh, didn't have the power to repeal any part of the Constitution by a mere statute. Now, they normally would be correct. Under Article 5, uh, Congress can't do that. But the exception is this provision, because this provision went through the constitutional amendment process. It was ratified, and it specifically gave Congress the power to do this. What's significant about that is that the committee did not argue, as some have argued today, that the Amnesty Acts only apply to individuals up until the time they were effective. They clearly believed that the Amnesty Acts actually uh, supposedly got rid of all of the disqualifications of Section 3, and but claimed that they weren't effective at all because Congress didn't have the power to do this. Okay, the second issue very quickly. Um, the Colorado court talked a lot about uh, the fact that the First Amendment did not protect the political speech and actions of Donald Trump. Now, it's very, we all know, Donald Trump has uh, very publicly disputed the outcome of the 2020 election. Uh, that speech, whether it was done in public meetings, public speeches, on Twitter, on television, is protected speech, uh, speech under the First Amendment. And what a lot of people seem to just forget is it doesn't matter whether the former president is completely wrong. The First Amendment protects you whether what you're saying is right or wrong, whether it's the truth 
or, or not, uh, you are protected by the First Amendment from doing that. And yet, for example, the RICO, state RICO case in Georgia, if you look through the indictment, it lists all these unlawful acts and, and one after another there gave a public speech on a certain date tweeted on a certain date. It's all First Amendment protected speech that, that they're attempting to criminalize. Now the other thing that people forget about this issue is that, look, the First Amendment doesn't just protect your right to speak. It has another very important protection that a lot of people overlook, which is your right to petition the government for redress of grievances. That means that you have the right, even if the assertions you're making are wrong, to talk to government officials and try to get them to change government policy or to change other things. And yet again, if you look at these indictments, like the Georgia one, they're saying it's a criminal act to have spoken to state legislators about the outcome of the election. And again, the point to remember is even if you are wrong in the opinions you are asserting, you have a right to do that under the First Amendment. The relevant case here is Brandenburg versus Ohio. And the Colorado court said, nope, the actions of, of um, Donald Trump were not protected by that. What that case said, 1969, is that even inflammatory speech is protected under the First Amendment unless it is, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. I think you need to go back to the speech that uh, Donald Trump gave in which, yeah, he's, he told people they should protest the outcome of the election, but he asked them to remain peaceful. And in fact, he put out a Twitter posting, which I just want to quickly read to you, in which he said, I'm asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful, no violence. Remember, we are the party of law and order, respect the law, and are great men and women in blue. Now look, you may legitimately believe that Trump's speech that day was ill-advised, imprudent, irresponsible, or generally misguided. But boy, that could describe a lot of speeches that have been given in this town, particularly on the Mall, uh, at very, very large protests. Uh, but for the very same reasons that those other speeches were protected by the First Amendment, and, and because uh, Donald Trump specifically told protesters they shouldn't engage in violence, he doesn't meet the standard of uh, urging people to engage in imminent lawless activities. Um, the, end the, end, the end result of all of this is that the idea that you, you could have a single state official, such as the Secretary of State of Maine, who in 2020 was an elector for Joe Biden <laughs> in the election, that she would have the authority to make her own conclusion that uh, the president engaged in insurrection in a truncated civil matter where the accused does not have the substantive due process rights that the Constitution requires for anyone accused of criminal conduct and has a very high standard in a criminal prosecution as to pose a civil matter, uh, giving state officials that kind of authority will cause political mayhem 
across the United States. As General Rakita said, some states may have them on the ballot, others may not. And if a lone state official has that power, another state official might say, well, you know, uh, Joe Biden shouldn't be on the ballot because he has committed treason by intentionally and deliberately failing to secure the border and allowing millions of aliens to come in and not uh, enforcing the Immigration Act. Or, you know, this individual can't be a candidate because they are not a natural born citizen of the United States, none of which should be in the hands of state officials. Thanks. just echo the thanks for uh, Heritage for putting this on and for everyone for uh, uh, coming. Uh, I'm Patrick Strawbridge. I am a, a litigator at Constable McCarthy. Um, as you heard, we did file an amicus brief on behalf of the RNC and the uh, RCC. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple of issues really quickly here, which is um, whether it's actually going to build, I think, on, on the last point that Hans was making about uh, whether Section 3 should be enforced by state officials determining ballot eligibility, and in particular, primary ballot eligibility. And we can start, as we always should, with the text of Section 3 itself. Um, obviously, Section 3 was concerned, it came in the wake of the Civil War, which was a division of the federal government. And there are many aspects of Section 3 and of the 14th Amendment general that I think highlight the importance of ensuring federal unity and the fact that it's federal government and not state government is going to matter when we talk about who should be entrusted with the power to make the eligibility determination under Section 3. Um, an important point on this, especially when we talk about when this decision is made, is that the, the, the relevant language with respect to former President Trump's uh, case prohibits any person from holding any office or military under the United States, and a hold is important. It doesn't prohibit someone from being nominated. It doesn't prohibit someone from appearing on a ballot. It doesn't prohibit someone from being elected as the candidate of a party. And it doesn't even prohibit somebody from actually being elected. It just, it just prohibits someone from holding office. So even setting aside all the other arguments about whether or not Section 3 applies, there's really no textual basis to assume that a, a state official can determine that the person will not even appear on the ballot. The prohibition is on holding office. Um, the, that's the first primary clue that the 14th Amendment does not justify state officials from making that decision at this point in time. And there's a second indication, too, as we, as we noted earlier. The last sentence of Section 3 allows for Congress to remove the disability by a two-thirds vote of each house. And if you think about it in that context, Determining that a candidate cannot even appear on the ballot for a national election like president creates a real problem in that it cuts off Congress's ability to cure uh, a disability, assuming that one exists, between the period that, that the candidate is running or even elected and before they assume office. Um, it's also consistent with the early history of Section 3 that this would ultimately be a decision that Congress is going to make after Section 3's ratification. Uh, several candidates' qualifications were challenged, and those challenges were decided by Congress post-election, not before the election occurred. Um, the, 
there was an evidentiary and deliberative process. There were complaints brought in Congress, and Congress heard debate and ultimately made the decision uh, post-election. There are also processes in place, including, for example, the 20th Amendment, that account for the possibility that someone might be elected to an office for which they are ineligible to sit or cannot assume the office. That's also true at state. Obviously, if, if someone were to be elected to a senator or a House of Representatives and was deemed to be ineligible, perhaps by a proceeding in Congress afterwards, then there are appointment processes and other ways that states can fill that vacancy. So it doesn't create any structural problem, the concept that someone might be elected to an office for which they're ultimately determined to be ineligible to sit. Um, and as we already heard, I think, uh, from Attorney General Rokita, uh, the Chief Justice Salmon Chase issued a decision when he was writing circuit that also emphasized that this was a decision for Congress to make through Congress's implementation of certain laws. Um, and <clears throat> indeed, Congress did take steps to enforce Section 3. Not only did it hear the proceedings that I mentioned earlier before, uh, it actually enacted a quo warranto proceeding, which was essentially to create a process and a cause of action by which uh, state officials could be removed in the, in the wake of Section 3. We also heard about legislation that was passed to provide for amnesty for people who were otherwise disqualified. So Congress has not only, from the textual clues and from the history, enacted with this power, but it also has, has, has actually used that power in, on, on a number of occasions. The Colorado decision is problematic in a couple of other ways, too. Um, by allowing state officers to make the decision as to who is to eligible run for office, it's in considerable tension, if not outright conflict, with the court's decision in U.S. term limits versus Thornton, which prohibits states from adding qualifications to federal office. It also creates additional problems in the primary context because there are First Amendment rights that attach to parties' decision as to who is going to represent them in general election. And the court has made clear in other cases that, that those First Amendment rights do matter. And of course, this obviously affects the ability, in this case, of the Republican Party to choose who they want to stand as their candidate of office. Um, but what I really, I guess, wanted to focus on the most, and this is, again, building on some of the other speakers' points, is what the consequences of the contrary reading that Colorado has adopted here. There, there's one consequence that I don't think has gotten enough discussion, but if you think about the context of when Section 3 was enacted and what it was designed to do, if, if the Colorado Secretary of State is right, what that essentially means is that Congress, uh, in the immediate wake of the Civil War, had turned over to any number of state officials in the former Confederacy to make on their own a determination as to who had engaged in rebellion or insurrection against the United States. And of course, with our backward glance from today, it seems obvious that the point was the Confederacy. But do we think that the people in the South in, in the 1890s were convinced that the real rebellion or the real insurrection was against the United States or against the Confederacy? You are, in place, you are, you are placing in power uh, a, a large amount of power in the hands of state officials. And it's not obvious to us, at least, that Congress would have intended to empower Southern officials, sometimes at the county level, to make those kinds of decisions as to who had engaged in insurrection or rebellion and who was ineligible to run for office. Um, and if we just carry that through to contemporary events, let's consider some examples of things that a state officer might, a state elections officer might determine constituted insurrection or rebellion. In the wake of the death of George Floyd, there were numerous armed riots, uh, demonstrations, 
A number of people were killed in various uh, demonstrations across the case. Uh, and you know, the current president and the current vice president made statements of support for many of those protesters. People, uh, in some cases, they supported the payment of bail to, uh, to re release people who had been charged with violent rioting uh, to be released from jail pending their trials. Um, some federal government buildings were attacked repeatedly, violently, set on fire. It, it would hardly be a stretch for someone to assume that, is, that, that supporting people who were engaged in violent attacks on federal buildings constituted a rebellion or an insurrection against the United States, if that's the precedent that we're setting here. And so that would raise question about whether the current vice president or the president uh, are disqualified from holding those offices. Uh, after the Supreme Court uh, heard one of the abortion cases in 2020, Chuck Schumer held a press conference in which he threatened uh, fairly explicitly, but he, he told Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh that they have released the whirlwind and they will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. As we're all aware, there was actually some significant uh, protest actions taken both at the Supreme Court, at the Justice's house. There was even a, a, a would-be assassin who showed up armed at Justice Kavanaugh's house in the wake of those discussions. It would not be much of a stretch to assume for somebody to argue that uh, Senator Schumer had given aid or comfort or at least had encouraged rebellion against the United States Supreme Court in that case. Um, what about when Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings were occurring? There was the forcible occupation of a number of Senate office buildings. A number of people were arrested, but I mean, the buildings were essentially overwhelmed and stormed by protesters who were sitting in during those confirmation proceedings. Representatives from the House of Representatives and Senator Kamala Harris addressed that crowd before they occupied the buildings. And some of them addressed, some, some elected representatives addressed that crowd as they were occupying the buildings, providing them support, telling them to rise up. That could be argued to be an insurrection or rebellion against the United States. And if this is where we're going, any number of state officials could determine that none of those people can run for office. Um, and then, of course, we heard the example of the immigration debate and the enforcement of our immigration laws and whether or not that could be deemed uh, supporting a rebellion uh, or insurrection against the United States. Many people do hold that opinion. And again, we are empowering uh, state officials across this country in a number of jurisdictions to take action that would severely constrict the ability of people to vote for their candidate of choice. I think in a way that's just inconsistent with what Section 3 was intended to do, what the language suggests it should do. And the consequences go even one step further beyond that. The advocates for this theory, in particular professors Bode and Paulson, and all disclosed, I, I clerked with Will Bode at the United States Supreme Court. I think that he's a very intelligent uh, fellow, but I disagree with him on this point. Um, their theory is not only are uh, any number of state officers entitled to make this determination and preclude even a vote uh, on various candidates, but that because the disqualification is instant and does not need any enforcement action or adjudication by Congress, all actions taken by an officer uh, who is disqualified, in their view, under Section 3, are ultra vires and are subject to collateral attack or to challenge by people who are affected by those actions. Well, that's quite a, quite a, quite a, quite a proposition if you carry that through, especially, I mean, you, in this case, President Trump remained in office for 
you know, I think 20 more days after January 6th, roughly, you know, two, two weeks, two and a half weeks. And one could open up a challenge to all sorts of executive actions that were taken during that period of time and attack them now. If we're talking about the examples we just gave with the vice president and the president who are in office now, if they're deemed by someone to have engaged in rebellion or insurrection, well then literally, you know, you know a, a countless number of executive actions that have been taken in the last two or four years could be subject to collateral attack. I don't think that's what Congress had in mind. I don't think that's what the text of Section 3 contemplates. And I, I'm certainly hopeful that the Supreme Court will reverse the decision from Colorado and restore to the federal branches the, the ultimate decision making here and not to, uh, you know, state officers who are exercising that judgment at the earliest possible point of the political process, the primary ballot. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be back at Heritage, my good friend, John Malcolm. Uh, we've talked about insurrection. We've talked about holding office. We've talked about the First Amendment. We've talked about amnesty. The next topic will be a little more boring, but even more important. Section 3 does not apply to everyone in America. If a private citizen engages in insurrection, Section 3 says nothing about you. It only applies to a person who took an oath in certain categories. So look at the text. So if you took, took an oath to the Constitution as a member of Congress, an officer of the United States, a member of a state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state. If you've taken oath in that capacity, then you are subject to Section 3. If you haven't, then Section 3 says nothing about you. Okay? At the back end, if you've actually taken that oath, and then you engage in insurrection, there's a disqualification. You cannot hold certain offices. You cannot be a senator, representative, you cannot be a presidential elector, and you cannot hold any office, civil, military, under the United States or under any state. Okay, so we have these two phrases that can be really important tomorrow. Officer of the United States and office under the United States. Now, frankly, most of us have never thought about these words before. Most people haven't. Uh, I have, and I've given a lot of thought to it, and I have to thank my co-author, Seth Barrett-Tillman. Seth, want to stand up for a second? Seth has been the architect of this topic for nearly 15 years. Long before Trump, long before Obama, he started writing about these issues. And he started thinking about what does this phrase mean in the Constitution, officer of the United States and office under the United States. If you read the Constitution, the phrase officer of the United States is used in four clauses. Four. The appointments clause says the president shall appoint the officers of the United States. That would seem to suggest that this phrase means appointed people and the president's making such an appointment. It does not mean elected. The commissions clause, the president shall commission the officers of the United States. I mean, you have a presidential commission, the president signs it, remember Margaret Madison, this is a document the president gives certain officers, again, appointments. The impeachment clause spells out who can be impeached. It says the president, the vice president, and the civil officers of the United States. You list the president, the vice president, separately from the officers because they are different. Again, officers of the United States means appointed. And if you look at Article 6, the oath clause, it's a long list of positions of people who take oaths to the Constitution, 
the president is not mentioned there. It does mention officers of the United States, which again are the appointed positions. In every time where the Constitution uses this phrase, officers of the United States, it means appointed positions. And the Supreme Court has said this in many cases over and over again, that officer of the United States means people who are appointed who are not elected. Even Chief Justice Roberts said this about 15 years ago in the Free Enterprise Fund case. All right. Now, fast forward to the 14th Amendment. The framers of the 14th Amendment use that same phrase, officer of the United States. And Seth and I argued in an amicus brief that this phrase means those who are appointed pursuant to the Appointments Clause, Article 2, Section 2. The president does not go through that process. He is not an officer of the United States. If we're right, and we think we are, the implication is that all this litigation is for naught, because Donald Trump is unique in American history. He's the only president who never held any governmental service, not in the military, not a governor, not a senator or anything. He had held no prior position. So if Trump had never before taken an oath to the Constitution, that his only oath was as an officer of the United States, then there's no problem. This is the ultimate off-ramp for the Supreme Court, as they say. If the court agrees with us, then all this litigation must come to a close, and the people can decide who the next president will be, not five members of the Supreme Court. Right? Now, people don't agree with us. My good friends Will Bode and Mike Paulson say that we're crazy, uh, that we're speaking in secret code. We're like Illuminati priests. I'm not exaggerating. They said that, true. But I think if you look very carefully at Tillman's body of scholarship for the last 15 years, it's pretty persuasive. And if the Supreme Court wants a very easy way of resolving this, it can do so. And just don't take our word for it. In Denver, the trial court judge accepted our argument. The trial court judge said, yes, the phrase officer of the United States means appointed, appointed uh, president elected, so nothing to do with Trump. So look, our theory has legitimacy. It was accepted by the lower court. Uh, we put it forward in our amicus brief. Uh, Patrick did it in his amicus brief. Thank you, citations, Patrick. Um, and this is actually Trump's lead argument that we're presenting tomorrow. Uh, we'll see what the court does with it. Okay, that is the first officer argument that will be forward. The second officer argument is at the back end, which says that if, in fact, you are disqualified, you cannot hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. Again, the president is not mentioned there. So the leading advocate for this theory is Professor Kurt Lash, a dear friend who won the, uh, the, 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 the Mies Award uh, last year at Heritage. Um, he's argued that this phrase, office under the United States in Section 3, is at most ambiguous. And he's presented some evidence that that phrase would not be understood to include the president. So one piece of evidence Kurt cites is an earlier version of Section 3, especially mentioned the presidency as one of the positions that you can be disqualified from holding. But as we can see, the ratified text does not mention the president. Kurt also advances an argument based on electors. He said that the way that you're going to keep a Confederate out of the White House is by making sure the electors were not former insurrectionists. If you can see, if you are a disqualified person, you cannot be a presidential elector. So Kurt argues those two ways, uh, those two arguments, the fact that the phrase office under the United States is ambiguous and that uh, electors are a way of keeping the president out. Um, Trump's lawyers haven't quite abandoned this argument, but they've come awfully close to it. If you read Trump's brief, it mostly says as well, this is ambiguous, we don't really know what it means. And I don't know that they've, they might have preserved it enough for the Supreme Court's concern, but it's sort of not quite all there. So let me try to now summarize up, and maybe I can just, as I'm batting cleanup, bring everything all together as my three-minute warning comes on. Um, the Supreme Court has a lot of options before it. Let me make this point very clear. 
in order for Trump to lose, he has to lose bigly, or it's a big league. He has to lose on everything. The court has to find, number one, that Colorado can enforce Section 3 without federal legislation. Number two, the president is an officer of the United States. Number three, that there was an insurrection. Number four, that Trump engaged in insurrection. Number five, that there's no First Amendment defense to whatever Trump did on January 6th. And then number six, and number six, I've lost count of my fingers, right? Number six, that the phrase office under the United States refers to the presidency. Trump has to be wrong on everything. If Trump has corrected any one of those junctures, any one of those steps, then he's on the ballot. So really, it would take an absolute, complete collapse of Trump's legal team for him to lose everything. It's possible, right? But he had to lose in every single human point in order for Trump to lose. If they're right in anything. So now you might ask, Josh, what's the way they're going to win? And look, it would be awesome if Justice Kagan wrote a 9-0 opinion saying the president is not office of the United States. That would just make my day. I would be happy. We'll see. But another possibility is fragmentation. As often happens, the court has to decide things quickly. They can't always come to an agreement. Uh, Bush v. Gore comes to mind. There were several dissenting opinions, a couple concurrences. Uh, Youngstown also was very fragmented, if you remember, the still seizure case. Um, so they might fragment. So maybe the chief justice might be very drawn to Salmon Chase, another great chief justice, and say, yes, we need federal legislation. Uh, John Roberts is a federal supremacist. He likes that stuff. And I could see him going that direction. Uh, maybe some of the more textualist, originalist-oriented justice say, well, you know, Blackman, Tillman have a point. This phrase offers to the United States. You know, maybe someone is taken, maybe the liberal justices are taken by the First Amendment. This was what Hans mentioned a moment ago, that, well, you know, we don't want people being thrown in, you know, insurrection camp because they gave a speech opposing uh, police brutality, right? Um, you only have to count to five, collectively. Uh, and I'm counting to five or six, maybe seven, depending how I count it. But I think that collectively, I hope, I pray, that there are not five votes to knock Trump off the ballot. I'll get to that point in a minute. Um, but I think collectively, you have enough wiggle room to get five votes to keep him on the ballot. And beyond that, who cares? Right Now, I'll just give a caveat to that. If the court accepts the salmon chase argument, which I think is actually correct, we Seth and I have advanced this position for some time, it says, okay, states, you can't do this. Only Congress can do it. But guess what happens on January 6th of 2025? We've seen January 6th, 21. What happens on January 6th, 25? What happens if there's Democratic majorities in both houses? And they go to the Capitol, and they start counting the votes. And then the first votes presented was it, was it Alabama. Uh, uh, I think Alabama's the first vote uh, alphabetically. And they say, Alabama votes so many votes for Donald Trump. And then someone raises their hand and say, I object. We have written objections from a fifth of all the members of Congress. We object because this vote was not, quote, regularly given. That's the phrase used in the statute, the Electoral Count Act, that a vote is not regularly given because Donald Trump is disqualified. We are objecting to Donald Trump's electoral vote from Alabama. Okay, and they break into the respective houses. And if a majority of the House and a majority of the Senate say we are rejecting this vote, then the vote is not counted. Do you really believe that the Supreme Court punts on this issue that the Democrats in Congress say, okay, you know what, we, we're just gonna accept the sitting down. If Trump actually wins, they can disqualify him on January 6th. Don't laugh, right, this can happen. Kamala Harris presiding, Democratic majorities in both houses, they can disqualify me on the spot. 
and they can make Joe Biden president. Right? Basically what John Eastman tried to do last time might actually happen this time, just in a little, little, little different direction. Right? But instead you'll have Mike Luddick instead of you know, John Eastman running the show. Um, this can happen. So my fear is that if the court, a majority takes this off ramp and says, we need Congress to do it, then you're going to let Congress do it. Uh, my, my good friend Patrick raises this argument at holding office, that at any point prior to the inauguration, Congress can grant an amnesty. Now, maybe they should, maybe they don't. But the problem is, this lingers on till Inauguration Day. I don't know if our polity can hold for another nine months of this, 10 months, however many months, I can't count. We're, we're, we're in February now, right? I don't know if we can hold only till Inauguration. I would like the court to resolve this cleanly. Look, if you're gonna kick him off the ballot, do it now, do it quickly, right? Let's pick another candidate and, and the court will deal with what it has to deal with, right? But if you're gonna let him on the ballot, make it clear that he can stay on the ballot and that he can be sworn into office. I think a half measure opinion or, or a majority of the court that leaves this to Congress is, is taking a risk. You're supposed to be playing with dynamite. Uh, it's a loaded gun, quote Robert Jackson, that might be fired at some point in the future. Um, now, do I think the court will kick him off the ballot? I don't think they will unless the court just says, look, there's too much crazy Trump stuff going on. Uh, let's just clean the slate, right? Let's just get rid of this and then we have to deal with them for four years, right? I don't think they would do that. And I pray they won't do that. But, but if they do it, you'll know why they did it. All right, that's all I have. Thank you so much and I welcome your questions. So that was a heck of a way to end these presentations. I'd say if the, if the Supreme Court did that, I, I, half the country might be pleased with it, but it would be a blatantly political act. So, so in a moment, I'm going to you know, allow people in the audience uh, to ask questions. Uh, I will ask you to wait until a microphone is delivered uh, to you. I want to get to as many of them as I can. Uh, let me begin by saying that I'm quite sure that every person in this audience has an opinion about this case. <laughs> Today is not the day to hear that opinion. It is your chance to ask questions. And that doesn't mean stating your opinion and then saying, do you agree with that? <laughs> uh, so I tell you what, I, I have a few questions, but I, I've already seen hands coming up. And we have about 15, uh, 20 minutes left. So let's, let's get to that. And if there's a lull in the action, I'll ask some of my questions. But let's start here with this gentleman. Uh, J.P. Hogan. Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, the two-thirds in there seems one of the most important parts is saying the Constitution stays sovereign. Um, the Democrats for 100-plus years have been the anti-Constitution party. They've been trying to change it with minimal uh, plurality, not a two-thirds. Um, on January 5th, when they took their oaths, there was a new dynamic to the uh, Democratic caucus of the 6-3 uh, Supreme Court. So if their oaths had been to their interpretation of the Constitution, and the Supreme Court was now 6-3 originalist. Trump was more defending the Constitution that day than the new Congress that came in starting to be Tea Party deniers. What's your question? The question goes to the law of interpreting. If, if it is a 6-3 Congress and the Democrats took an oath, but they weren't necessarily, their oath is to their a different view of the Constitution than what the 6-3 Supreme Court holds, there's a gap there on what would be the Constitution, defend, Trump being defending the Constitution more than a rebellion to it. 
their acts on January 5th were What's in rebellion. Question? It's the separation of powers. Does the Supreme Court of 6-3 determine more what the interpretation of the Constitution is, okay. or does the new Congress? Thank you. I'm not. I don't. I don't. I'm not trying. Is there? Do you have anything to say to that? Okay. Any other next question? Okay, well, let me ask a couple questions myself then. So uh, there are the off-ramps. Uh, uh, you know, it says can't hold uh, office. They could decide that the whatever procedure Colorado had provided was uh, failed to provide due process uh, to Donald Trump. Uh, and I'm curious whether the you've already you've already said, Josh, that you do not you, you pray that they don't take those uh, those off-ramps. I'm curious what the rest of you think about whether you think it's likely they're gonna take one of these off ramps. Uh, how important is it that the court try to get as close to unanimity as possible? Uh, so whoever wants to jump in on well, that. I, I wanna emphasize one thing that Josh talked about, but it is really important. Um, look, the Supreme Court, has, there's precedent on the phrase officer of the United States. I mean, there's a late case in the 1800s where the Supreme Court said, an officer of the United States is someone who was appointed, not elected to office. And just, was it 10 years ago? About 10 years ago, uh, in another case, uh, the Chief Justice repeated that. So that issue, I think, is actually pretty much decided. And you know, for the public that's watching this, look, the easiest way to understand this is Merrick Garland, is an officer of the United States because he was nominated, appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. Joe Biden is not an officer of the United States because he was elected. And that to me, you know, if they want to get rid of this case without having to deal with all these other issues, that's the easiest way to do it because they say, look, we don't have to decide whether he's guilty of insurrection or any of these other things because the phrase doesn't apply to him, period. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, <clears throat> I appreciate Josh churching it up a bit with the term <laughs> fragmentation. Um, so others would call it posturing, um, especially in state courts. Uh, but I, you know, I'm also, you know, on record on a national broadcast of saying this is going to be a 9-0 opinion uh, to keep President Trump on the ballot, of course. I was heartened last night to hear Alan Dershowitz take that same bat. So I'm wondering what you all think, uh, if it's gonna be uh, that, uh, that unified. I think it should be for the reasons uh, that, that Hans explained. I, I do appreciate the argument that Josh is making, though I don't necessarily agree with it. Uh, as I said in the beginning of my remarks, you know, as a guy who's, who's fought for state rights the last three years and certainly before that as a member of Congress and the enumerated powers, we also have to recognize when something is Congress's job and this clearly is that, however they're gonna vote. They are certainly more directly accountable to the people than any court is. Uh, so, and, and I also wanna apologize, apologize to you, John. Uh, I was flustered coming in here, and I think I called you Malcolm I've at the beginning. Called so, worse, don't worry. Uh, excuse <laughs> me for that, but it's great to be here. And he's Malcolm on the end, not Malcolm in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick? Yeah. I mean, I, as someone who's, who's, who's had the privilege of litigating in front of the court a number of times, spend a lot of time thinking about how you're going to get to, you know, five. Um, 
or in this case six or maybe seven or nine, um, I do think that the court will want to try to decide this case in as unanimous a fashion as possible. There will be a desire to not just have a 6-3 decision or a 5-4 decision, but to bring some of the other justices along. But that's going to be in tension with the points that Josh was making. Um, I do think that the officer uh, of the United States is the cleanest and the easiest and the most, you know, the most straightforward way to resolve it if you want to you know, basically put this to rest for once and for all, but there might be some resistance from some sectors of the court to, to so finally resolve it. And sometimes it's easier to get people to sign on to a more incremental or a less sweeping decision. And that's where you get a decision along the lines of, you know, it's either because it's the primary, the First Amendment kicks in, or you get a decision that says, well, wait, and it, it's a decision to be adjudicated after the election, not before the election, or it's something that Congress deals with in the first instance. Um, I think it's very hard in this case to predict this one. This is a really dramatic case. I don't think the court had a choice but to take it once a court granted or, or you know, went, went this way on this issue. I think if all the lower courts had continued to reject this argument, the court would have never touched this issue with a 10-foot pole, but they were obviously compelled to step in at this point. Uh, I do hope that it will garner you know, across, across party, you know, for, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, cross coalition opinion and I would love to see it on the office of the United States because I think that's the officer of the United States because I think that's the clearest clearest path to that. So everybody says, uh, oh, you know, how could this not apply to, to the president? And Patrick, you alluded to this before you did a little bit too, Josh, which is to say that at the time that this was passed, you know, the concern was not that Jefferson Davis was somehow going to be elected president of the United States, which is a national election. It was that the Confederate states were going to elect people who had clearly engaged in, you know, in, in insurrection, Alexander Stevenson, Stevenson, the vice president of the Confederacy, was elected to Congress afterwards. And they were going to put them back in to prevent things like the Reconstruction Amendments and, and, and whatnot from, from coming into place. You made the point about a presidential electors or presidential electors uh, had engaged in a rebellion, then they wouldn't be qualified. And if they had all qualified electors, the odds of Jefferson Davis being elected president were slim and none. And I'm, I'm curious why that, whether you think the court's going to pick up on that. It hasn't really been discussed very much. In fact, a lot of people on the other side are saying, well, of course the president is an officer of the United States. He simply has to be. Right. So there, there are two. The Jefferson Davis horrible, as Seth and I have called it, is like, how could they allow Jeff Davis, who was a senator, a U.S. senator, become president? And there's a number of newspaper articles at the time saying, who we Jeff Davis can't be president. We think it's a bit overstated. It's almost like hyperbole. It's almost like a, like a slippery slope. No one actually expected Jeff Davis to be president, right? Um, but that goes to the second question, whether the presidency is an office under the United States. That's the back end. The front end is whether the president is an officer of the United States. And until Donald Trump, every other president held some prior governmental service, right? We say the framers had no reason to think about a person a businessman who became president with no prior oath to the Constitution. I mean, the example I give is if Cornelius, mm. Cornelius Vanderbilt, right, said, you know what, I'm gonna be president, he ran for president one, then he joined the Confederacy, and then he ran for re-election, right? That's basically the, the, the analogy to think of, and we think it's so unlikely that this wasn't on their minds. And we know quite well that when you adopt a text, what matters is the meaning of the text, not your expectations. Hello, Justice Gorsuch and Bostock, right? If Bostock means anything, it's that the intention of the framers don't really matter. And we think under the meaning of the words they chose, which are the same meaning of the words in the oath clause of Article 6, officers of the United States does not include the elected president. I saw a hand up. Uh, let's come down here. Okay, and then we'll, we'll do here and then there. Yeah. 
Mark Lerner. Um, could we look at this in an enumerated powers way? Could we look at this in an enumerated powers way in that that section three allows Congress to qualify people who would have been disqualified, mm -hmm. but doesn't it in fact leave it up to the states to disqualify them? And they, it's not Congress who disqualifies. They can undisqualify. That's what section three says but it's up to the states for a power that's not enumerated in the Constitution. I, I, I just don't think you can read it that way because, uh, I mean, look at Section 5. It says Congress shall have the power to enforce through appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. You'll find that same statement in almost all of the, all of the amendments. So when Samuel P. Chase, then the Chief Justice of the United States, said in a circuit court opinion just a couple of, uh, uh, just not long after this was passed, look, this provision isn't self-executing. State officials, courts cannot enforce this provision without Congress passing legislation to do it. So I think that actually answers the question. There is no legislation in, pa in, in place to do it. Now, there is a federal code section that makes it a criminal violation of the law to engage in insurrection or rebellion. But as a uh, state Supreme Court pointed out in, what, 2022, was it Arizona? Yeah, it was Arizona. In Arizona, in 2022, there was an effort to knock off, again, members of Congress because they supposedly had engaged in insurrection. And the, the court pointed out that um, yeah, there's a federal statute, but there's no private right of action under that, that uh, criminal uh, statute for insurrection or rebellion. So no, you know, plaintiffs can't go to court and try to enforce that provision. And there certainly isn't any federal statute uh, allowing specifically enforcement of Section 3. And, and some people have pointed out so that, that code section makes it a crime to engage in insurrection. It's Title 18, United States Code 2383. And not only has Donald Trump not been convicted of that, he has not been even charged with it. It was alluded to in, uh, in the charge the, the, of the second impeachment, mm -hmm. uh, but he was, of course, acquitted of that uh, right. by, uh, by the Senate. It, no one's been charged with insurrection, not even the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, there's no federal indictments for the insurrection statute. Yeah, yeah and, and just, John, just look, that, look, that's a really important point. The second articles of impeachment, one of the articles was incitement of insurrection. Okay, and he was acquitted in the Senate. So it was the decision of the representatives of all 50 states, all 50 states, that he was not guilty of, of insurrection. So what, we think that one state official, a secretary of state, should overrule the judgment of the representatives of the 50 states, that that makes from a federalism standpoint, that makes no sense whatsoever. Well, just, just pointing out, just to be fair, and I, I think there's a lot of salience to the argument you just made. It, said it was not unanimous to acquit him uh, in the impeachment trial. And there were several Republicans who said that significant to their decision to acquit was the fact that he was no longer president and hence sub not subject to conviction. But, but your point still stands. Christy, we'll come down to you. Christy McCormick. I think you've all alluded to this a little bit, but um, what are the chances that the court takes the first easy off 
ramp, which is this doesn't even address running for office versus holding office. That's Patrick. Do you want to do that one? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I think I think that if you were to ask me to like handicap what is the opinion that could get the most votes right now, it might be that one because it it kicks the can down the road. It, but the downside to it is the downside that Josh raised, which is that it kicks the can down the road and it's it's sort of like a pressure cooker. It's like okay, well may, you might open the lid now, but then you're going to clamp it back down for nine months, and who knows what it's going to look like. Uh, you know, come come post post the election itself, and especially as we build up to the counting of electoral votes. So, um, I, I do think it's a possibility. It's also possible that you'll see, like Josh said, you could see a concurrence, right? You could see six votes on officer, the other two concur, and they don't address officer, or they disagree, but they say we agree because at this point in time, it, it's not appropriate. It is interesting. I'll just briefly note this. Um, in some of the lower courts, this has been framed under the political question doctrine, and I think maybe 40 or 50 years ago, this might have been thought as kind of a quintessential political question that the court wasn't going to take a role in, but the court has been sort of whittling away at the political question doctrine as just as, do as a doctrinal matter for a number of years. And so it doesn't really neatly fit within the scope of that doctrine as it exists today, and I, I suppose that uh, Trump is probably grateful for that because he needs it to not be a political question doctrine so he can get it into court and, and, and litigate or, it. Or follow up, if it's a political question, and let's say Congress DQs him on January 6th, can you appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court? Right. In other words, let's say on January 6th, right. Kamala Harris DQs Trump. Could Trump appeal that to the U.S. Supreme Court or is that a political question? So that's why Trump cannot argue this is a political question because then they can't review that you know, after the inauguration. Now, I do think, by the way, as I recall, there was one court, I think it was the Minnesota Supreme Court, before Colorado issued its decision, or might have been right afterwards, that, that did decide the case yeah. to kick the can down the road by saying, well, this has to do with holding okay. office, not running for office. Right. We have time for one more question. We'll come down here. Quick, yes. I, I Also, what, if he hasn't been charged, he hasn't been convicted with impeachment, why is any of this even relevant? Are we getting down to the Supreme Court look between an originist um, version of looking at this amendment or, or an interpretive one? Is that what we're coming down to? Because otherwise, why is it even coming up? Because he hasn't been even charged with insurrection. Thank you. I think the short answer to that question is because Colorado Supreme Court has disqualified <laughs> him from the ballot. But I think we perhaps have you know, some time for very, very quick closing thoughts if anybody has any to, to offer. Uh, I'll just give a football analogy. Sometimes when you punt the ball, it's blocked, returned for a touchdown. So I think the court should be very careful about <laughs> an off-ramp because as I like the pressure for analogy that Patrick brought. If this comes back in November or December or Lord help us January, it will be so much more volatile. And, and look, I mean, we don't know what will happen. Trump, if anything else, he's unpredictable. Or maybe he's predictable, I don't know. But we don't know what will happen if the court lets us linger for, for nine months. So last thought, which is usually in the most important or big significant cases, the court typically waits until the last week of June to issue their <laughs> I'm assuming everybody here agrees no quick decision, end of February? I think before Super Tuesday. Yeah, Yeah. very fast. I mean, keep in mind that uh, the Trump campaign filed its petition for certain, and the, the court granted it what two days two days later, right? Yeah, and and uh, oral arguments only a month later. That that's that's super light speed for the Supreme Court. Right. Well, now you've heard what these folks have to say. Now we'll think, hear what the justices have to say. Please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>